Well, um, when we first moved to Austin to, uh, to start Gateway Church, uh, we first moved there, we moved into a new house and there weren't any real flowers or anything in the front yard. And I decided I'm gonna plant a flower bed around our tree in our front yard. But you have to know, I have a black thumb. I'm, I'm horrible with plants. So I went to the garden center and I asked them, you know, what should I do? And they said, oh yeah, the, the soil in Austin's really bad. Here, mix this into the soil. And they gave me this really nasty smelling dirt. You wouldn't believe what plants and flowers live on. And they said, we want you to then fertilize it every week. So I went back and I made this, this garden and planted these flowers. And uh, my next door neighbor saw what I was doing and, and he decided he was gonna do the same thing. Only he didn't, he didn't get the smelly, dirty soil and he didn't fertilize. He just planted in the regular Austin soil and watered each week. And by the middle of the summer, I was clearly winning. See, everything is kind of a competition uh, among us Americans. And um, my flowers were these beautiful mounds of, of white and magenta and purple, and his were these little twiggy things. So about uh, the middle of the summer, he comes over and he asks, what are you doing to your flowers? <clears throat> and, I, and I told him what the garden center said to me. And the next year comes around, and in the spring, he did what the garden center told me to do. I, on the other hand, thought, I've already got good soil. And so I just watered with regular water. And do you know, by the end of that summer, he had these beautiful mounds of color and mine were the little twiggy things. And what I realized was that making and maintaining good soil is everything if you want plants and flowers to grow. If you get the soil right, the plants grow naturally. If the soil gets depleted of those essential nutrients, nothing grows. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. What is the soil that is needed for people to grow into the masterpiece of beauty God intended us to be? And in order to, to get you thinking about that, I want to take you into the first small group I led the first year uh, of our church, as our church was growing up out of the world around us. Dave and Kim were a, a young engineer and teacher in their late 20s, and they were headed for a divorce when one night they were watching the show Touched by an Angel. Did you guys have that here? And, and they said to each other, do you think there really is a God? And if so, do you think he could help us with our marriage? And as a result, they started looking for churches to try to understand about God, and they, they felt like they weren't really accepted in, in some of them. And then a friend invited them to our new church, and I met him in the lobby, and I invited him to come to my small group. First night in our little home group, uh, about halfway through, they stopped me and they said, hey, is it okay if we take a smoking break? <laughs> and another member of the group, of this new group, said, yeah, I have a hard time concentrating if I can't have a smoke. Well, that's messy. I've never led a smoking small group before, <laughs> you know. I don't particularly like the smell of smoke. What do you do? I figure, well, better that they're there wanting to learn. So I said, okay. Later in that year, it came out in the safety of that group that they were having marriage problems and marriage struggles. But as a result of the soil of that group, not only did Dave and Kim come to faith in Christ, they got into marriage counseling, uh, they, they healed a lot of things in their past, and they've been leaders in our church since. Paul and Phoebe were both in their mid-50s, Phoebe had a master's degree in child development. Paul was a carpenter, but had been homeless for 10 years. They met in a halfway house because both of them were recovering alcoholics, and they had lived together 
um, in a de facto relationship four years when they first came to our church and got into my small group. I found out one, one weekend when I was talking about you know, the, this uh, lack of commitment that my generation has and fear of marriage and how we think that living together is going to help us avoid divorce and yet the truth is it increases the chance of divorce by 50% again. And I go to my group that week and I found out three of the couples had lived together before marriage. Well, that's messy. I've never let a live-in small group before either. <laughs> and yet, as we talked in that group, uh, Paul and Phoebe, who at first, Jesus freaked them out. They believed there was a higher power, weren't sure about Jesus, but they came to faith uh, in Christ. And I was able to marry them later that year, and they started to serve in our church and have been serving for years. Jay and Arden, if you looked at them on the outside, college educations, managers, had a young kid, looking at them on the outside, you would never guess that they had a past of drug addiction that they were running from. In fact, they came to our church because they wanted to stay away from that. In my small group that year, they too came to faith in Christ. But year two, one night, Jay got honest with the men of the group and he admitted that he drank two or three beers every night. Now, I've not, never led a recovery group before, but I figure if you have a drug addiction in your past and you're drinking every night, that's probably not good. And yet I watched as this newly formed community of Christ lovingly talked Jay through it, and he turned from alcohol, and he started becoming an avid, avid student of the Bible and later started leading in our recovery ministry, helping others as well. Lena and Brad came the second year of our group, and Lena's first night in the group uh, she said, hey, I just want you to know where I'm coming from. I think all religions are equally valid. I don't know what I think about Jesus, but I hate it when one religious group puts another religious group down. Hope that's okay. Okay? Well, we're a Christian church. I said, but you know what? That's all right. Because I, I believe that the truth has nothing to fear. Ask your questions. Hang out. And over the course of that year, struggling through what she believed and starting to understand who Jesus was and what he promised, she came to believe in him as a way and the truth and the life. This was my first small group. And it was messy. But you know what? I have never seen the Spirit of God more alive, changing lives, mine included. And this is the world we live in. It's a very broken, messy world that we live in. And that is the soil in which God actually grows people, all of us, to become more and more of what he intended us to be. But let me ask you, if that kind of messiness is not showing up in our Christian communities that we hang out with, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean that people really have no problems? They have no you know, marriage problems, they have no secret sins, they have no pornography struggles or, or other greed tendencies or any of that? Or does it mean that people are wearing masks and pretending? Or does it mean that we're not helping the world come and find the life-giving way of Jesus? But here's what I believe. I believe your church and, and mine, that we have the potential for God to heal our very broken, cynical, messy world if we are willing to create the soil where we say, no perfect people allowed here. We're not going to pretend and play that game because there aren't any perfect people. And instead, we're going to be people 
who are able to admit our struggles and our failures and our sins and our problems, and we're going to walk with each other together in supportive community so that we can all become more and more of the people God intended. I believe this is the soil in which God grows and heals people best. Now it's interesting, the Bible records many interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And it's interesting if you study them because Jesus actually reserved some of his harshest words not for the thief or the prostitute or the sinners of his day, but for the religious leaders of his day. And we need to think about that. The religious leaders of his day actually had very derogatory things to say about Jesus. They didn't like him. And you know why? Because his ministry was very messy. They didn't like who he hung out with. And in fact, they, call, they, they said he's the friend of sinners. That was their derogatory term for Jesus. At the same time, you find that the moral foul-ups of Jesus' day were very attracted to Jesus because there was something life-giving and hopeful that he offered them. On the other hand, Jesus, uh, really what he was, didn't like about the religious leaders of his day is that they, they were full of pretense. They, they were full of religion, but they were not authentic before God and in front of other people. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees that we find in Matthew uh, chapter 23. And I want to look at what we learn from this about the soil that Jesus wants us to create in our church cultures. The first thing we th see in, in Matthew uh, 23 is Jesus saying, we've got to lose any religious pretense. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the Scriptures. So practice and obey whatever they say to you, but don't follow their example. For they do not practice what they teach. They crush you with impossible religious demands, but they never lift a finger to help ease the burden. Now this is interesting. The religious leaders of Jesus' day worked really hard to be good religious people. You know, they had 613 rules that you had to follow if you were going to be a good church member. In our church, we only have 600 rules you have to follow. <laughs> Just kidding. Now they, they scrupulously followed everyone. They, they really were the best religious people of that day. But the problem is, and the reason Jesus rebukes them is because they focused on outside appearance, but they neglected the internal matters of the heart. In fact, in the chapter before this, in Matthew 22, they try to trap Jesus and they ask him, what do you think the greatest commandment is? And here's what Here's what Jesus says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And remember, he was only asked for one. But he, he gives the second because you can't disconnect them. And he said, Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep only these and you will fulfill and obey all the others. See, the heart of authentic faith is learning to truly love and respond to God and let him lead us to truly love and have hearts of compassion and authenticity before other people. But to be honest about our own failures and struggles that we, we might walk together to help each other grow. Jesus is saying, lose the religious pretense because it's destructive to the kind of soil where people grow best. 
He's saying, I want authentic, honest people who will truly have hearts of mercy and compassion and love toward one another, even those who don't look so good on the outside. Uh, when we first started our church, I, I talked on this very message, and uh, I got tested on this myself. Um, a couple of days after that, I got this email from a woman who said, today, for the first time ever, I felt like I found a place where I could explore spirituality and I would be accepted. Thank you. I hope to be able to talk my husband into trying our church. We both have tattoos and piercings, and we've always felt uncomfortable in traditional churches. You're just what I've been asking for. And then she put a little P.S. on the bottom of her email. P.S. I almost used my work email to send this, but then I thought, why use a mask and pretend this is me? And I looked at her email address, and it said, brown-eyed bi. I was like, she couldn't be bisexual. I mean, she's married. She has three little kids. Well, later that month, Tia invited uh, my wife Kathy and me over for dinner. And we were over at dinner, and after dinner, Kathy was talking to her husband Jeff, and I was talking to Tia, and Tia was talking, she was saying, I just, I just love this series we're in right now. And I was doing a series on Matthew 18, on biblical conflict resolution. And she said, I just love this so much. You know, I went home last week, and I did exactly what you were teaching. I called my best friend, who I haven't talked to in over a year, and we made up, and we're friends again. And I was kind of curious, why, why wouldn't you talk to your best friend in over a year? And so I asked her. And she said, oh, Jeff, my husband got her pregnant when the three of us were in bed together. And I'm new to this. And I'm waiting for her to say, just kidding, pastor. <laughs> but she didn't. She kept going like she's telling me the weather report. And she said, but I went home and, you know, we had, we had had a fight after that and we haven't talked for a year, but then I did exactly what you said and we made up and reconciled and I just feel like I'm growing spiritually so much and my head is spinning. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, Lord, what do I do? I mean, what was it they taught me in seminary about how to deal with situations like this? <laughs> yeah, they don't. <laughs> and so I said, you know, Jesus, you already knew this. What do I do? And I, and I seriously felt like he said, I want mercy. Listen to her. And so I started talking to her about it. And she mentioned, you know, I know this is not a healthy lifestyle for me or my kids. And I said, well, well Tia, how would you get involved in that? And then what I heard broke my heart. She told me about how when she was an eight-year-old girl, her parents divorced and she would see her dad, stay with her dad in the summer times until she became a, a young teenager and then he started making sexual advances toward her and she had to cut off that relationship. And then she told me about in high school when the football team gang raped her and on and on like that. And suddenly I realized I'm looking into the eyes of a precious little girl who learned from a broken, evil world that this was all she was worth, what she could do for people with her body, male or female. So I took a risk and I said, you know, uh, Tia, what do you think about Jesus? And she said, well, I'm, I'm good with God. I don't know about Jesus. Jesus' people are mean. And I said, well, let me explain to you why God claims that he revealed himself in Jesus so we could know him in a personal way and know his love for us and know that he, he's not trying to judge or condemn us, but set us free. And then I told her, I said, Tia, I believe that God has led you to our church for a reason. Because he wants you to know his love, and he wants to heal you of all the hurt and woundedness of that past. 
And that gave her hope. She got connected into my wife's small group. And for the next year, she heard other women being honest about their own struggles and temptations. They studied the life of Jesus. And during that year, she came to faith in Christ and got baptized. She turned away from those lesbian relationships. She got into to, to counseling. Tremendous growth. But see, that kind of growth, we can't cause in each other. Only God can do that in our hearts. But what we need is the soil in which we're not just trying to get people to conform on the outside, but instead we're allow all of us allowing God to change us from the inside out because we're not pretending. We're not playing games. You know, that's what God wants in a church culture. He wants people that will be real with God and with each other. Maybe some of you, you know, uh, you, you feel this, this tendency to pretend, wear masks when you come to church, that, that things are a little bit better than they really are. And I know talking to Reuben that that's not the kind of culture you're trying to create. I want to encourage you. Trust God and be willing to take some risks. Because we individually are the only ones who can help change the culture so that we can be a place where all people can grow. Well, Jesus goes on and he says, we've got to lose the need to please people, though, if we're going to create this kind of environment. Matthew 23, 5 through 7. Everything they do is done for people to see, Jesus said. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and have people call them rabbi. Jesus said the, the problem he had with the religious leaders of his day is they spent all their time in image management. You know, they were kind of the, the, the Tory spellings of Jerusalem, you know. They were, they were just trying to make sure that people thought of them right. And, and the problem is they were, they were focused on their position, on their power, on honorary titles, because looking good in the eyes of others was everything to them. You know, you ever found yourself feeling this pressure to try to, try to find the approval of others? You know, whether it's... Um, you know, bending the truth just a little bit to make yourself look a little bit better than is reality. You know, or worried about what you look like and what people think about you. Or always having those thoughts go through your head of being self-conscious about what others are saying about you or thinking about you. You know, how, how much money you have or what positions you have or, you know, comparing yourself to others. I know I have felt this pressure. I've felt this pressure. And what I've realized is that when we live to please people, we really are going to struggle to just love the people around us. Remember 9-11. You know, 9-11 was a, was a huge thing in, in America. And right after this, we had this anthrax scare. Um, terrorists were putting anthrax, this white powdery substance, in envelopes and just mail it, mailing it. And um, what we found out is often they came in unmarked envelopes. Well, about this time, I wake up in the middle of the night with this horrible headache and horrible nausea. And, uh, you know, Kathy was up with me that night. And the next day, she said, I want you to go to the doctor. And you have to understand, I'm kind of a minimizer. I'm kind of like, oh, it's no big deal. Let's just leave it alone and it'll go away. And Kathy is more of a better safe than sorry kind of person. And so we balance each other out well. You know, like with the kids, um, I teach them to take risks and she makes sure they stay alive. You know, things like that. <laughs> And so uh, the next day, Kathy, it's Saturday, and Kathy's doing the mail, and she finds this unmarked envelope. 
And she says, what if this is anthrax? What if that's why you had that headache and nausea last night? Mr. Minimizer, I said, it's not anthrax. Let me see that. And I looked at the letter, and I held it up to the light. Didn't look like anthrax. Smelled it. Didn't smell like anthrax. I'm sure it's nothing. Just let's not make a big deal out of it. But, you know, she had heard in the news that if, you know, you found an unmarked envelope like that, you should report it. So, you know, wanting to be safe rather than sorry, she called the police to just ask them, what should we do with this? No kidding. Fifteen minutes later, out in front of our house were two police cars, full-size fire truck, the hazmat vehicle, a paddy wagon, the fire chief's car, all of them with their lights circling around. Every one of our neighbors is lined up down the street wanting to find out what kind of trouble the pastor guy got into this time. And I walk into the backyard and here are 20 of our public service personnel standing in a circle looking at a little white envelope on the ground. Finally, they opened it. It was nothing. It was some tracks somebody sent. And I was angry. And Kathy, you know, when we interacted, she said, what's wrong with you? And I was just, I was so uptight and fuming inside. Now, let me ask you, why was I so angry? Why was I so upset? Why did I need to actually go and apologize to my wife for that afterwards? What, was it really that she had done something horrible against me, sinned against me? No. No, I was all bent out of shape because I was too worried about what the neighbors thought about us. Because I didn't want to have to feel embarrassed and explain what happened to the neighbors. You know, when we spend our time and energy worried about what others think about us, we aren't able to really love the people around us. It poisons the soil in which God can cause growth. It gets us preoccupied with our, ourselves rather than just being ourselves and seeking to care about and love the people around us. That's why Jesus says, lose it. Lose the need to please people. Look at what he goes on and says in Matthew 23. You are not to be called rabbi, for you only have one master, and you're all brothers and sisters. And don't, do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what Jesus is saying is, is not literally that it's wrong if you ever call your dad father or you call your professor a teacher. What he's saying is there is only one voice that we need to live to please. We've got to put his voice first, even above our parents. We've got to decide we're going to live to please God, not live to please people, because that is what frees us to be authentic people, to be real, genuine people who, who don't have to pretend or cover up and instead can think about and care about the people around us. This is the soil where we grow. Jesus goes on, he says, lose the need to be perfect. Matthew 23, 25 through 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that what they needed to do is prove to the world that they were good that they were perfect. And so they played this game. They had this, this perfectionistic attitude where they tried to put out 
and show that they were more righteous than other people. And as a result, it created this us-them mentality where they thought, well, we really are a little bit better than those people out there. And they talked about them. They talked about us and they talked about them. And Jesus had a real problem with that. And the reason he had a problem with that is because the truth is all of us are, are broken people who even trying our best, we fall and we fail and we need God's help to become the people he intended us to be. See, people were never intended to become what God intended apart from his help. We all have to rely on him. And then he does inside of us what we can't do for ourselves, just trying to change the outside. But this is exactly why they judge Jesus as a false Messiah. He couldn't be righteous. Look at who he hangs out with. He hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the immoral kinds of people. People like the Samaritan woman, right? Who had racked up five divorces and was now living with a sixth man. And yet... There was something they saw in Jesus that as a result of following him, they found life and actually turned away from that way of living because they found something more attractive. They found something hopeful. They found something better. And so Jesus gets in the religious leader's face and look at what he says. Jesus said to them, Matthew 21, 31, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Wow. <laughs> no wonder they crucified him. I mean, they worked their whole life to keep up this image that I'm perfect. You know, to prove to the world that they really did do exactly everything right, the way they should. And yet, here Jesus pulls back the covers and he reveals the truth. And what he's saying is, the truth is, you do still struggle. And you have secret sins and, and secretly you're self-centered or you're lustful or you're, you have these greedy tendencies, but you're hiding and pretending and putting out this image, but God knows your heart. And what he's doing, he's not, he's not trying to condemn. He's trying to say, until you're honest with God and with others, you can't let God really help you become who he intended you to be. That's why James, Jesus' younger brother, says this in James 5.16. He says, Confess your sins, therefore, to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. See, this is the soil in which people grow best, where we, we, we don't hide and pretend. We realize nobody's perfect, nobody's sin-free, nobody's untarnished, and so we're going to be honest about who we really are and where we really are, and we're going to encourage each other to seek God's help and stay connected to Him. And then together as we pray for one another, what we find is that God does in us what we couldn't do, just trying hard on our own. And in that kind of supportive community, we all change. And it becomes in this incredibly life-giving place, not only to us, but to the whole world around us. Here's the thing I want to leave you with. Each one of us chooses. Will we take the risk to trust God and seek to become this kind of place? Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, 
please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.